You're listening to the podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. Statistics. 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 Hello, welcome to the ASA Biopharmaceutical Section podcast. We are your hosts, Amy Lalonde and Christina Nurse. Today, we will discuss diversity, equity, and inclusion in clinical trials with Lachelle Robinson, the Director of Diversity and Inclusion in Clinical Trials at Takeda Pharmaceuticals. We'll take this opportunity to remind everyone that the opinions expressed in this podcast and on the following discussion are solely those of us, the presenters, and not necessarily those of the companies we work for, Takeda and Eli Lilly. Takeda and Eli Lilly do not guarantee the accuracy or reliability of the information that's provided herein. So, Lachelle, thank you for joining us to discuss this very important topic. We know that expanding diversity and inclusion in clinical trials is extremely challenging and multifaceted, and we are excited to have this opportunity to discuss it with you today. So before we dive in, will you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became the Director of Diversity and Inclusion at clinical, in Clinical Trials at Takeda and why diversity, equity, and inclusion is so important in clinical trials? Well, first and foremost, thank you again for having me here. Um, this is a topic that I love to talk about, um, love to increase awareness around, and quite frankly, I'm just happy that this is my day-to-day job. Um, so I actually started off as an educator, I was sharing with you all before, where I taught uh, biology and physics. And really how that came to be is when I was in um, undergraduate at Tuskegee University, I was really, really bent on becoming a physician. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and the lack of diversity there, race, ethnicity, diversity, all of that was always a topic of conversation. And even in fact, when I was in high school, I helped part of, be part of programs where we were addressing um, race and ethnicity issues across our high schools. And so it was something that I had always, always been passionate about, but I love science. I love numbers. I feel like data explains and takes a lot of the emotion that kind of comes along with a lot of these topics. And so I said, I wanted to be a doctor. That was the way I was going to tackle health equity. But a few incidents happened where um, it really dawned on me that we just have a lack of medications And one of those was with my sister. She has migraines. Um, I know a lot of young women have migraines that are really on the onset of them becoming a woman. And every single time we went to the doctor, they gave her the same medications. So this one time in particular, um, the doctor, I asked him if he could give her something different. And he looked at me and he just said, ma'am, unless you want to put her in a clinical research trial, this is all that's available. And now speed forward, we have Botox, we have all these different medications that are available for something as simple as a migraine, but this is something that really impacted her. I mean, she would miss almost a week of school just because of these migraines. And so it really made me pause and it was a full stop. I I, I just said to myself, wow, I could become a physician and I could be in that exact same situation where I'm trying to help patients and I literally have no treatments, no drugs available. And so I said, you know what? I need to figure out how drugs are actually made. And then, of course, I was revealed to the clinical research process. But simultaneously, being a Tuskegee University graduate, 
we had learned about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. We were literally in the community. And while it didn't take place on the campus, we were literally in the community that was just so impacted by that. And the reverberation of that within the healthcare community, my parents talk about being in high school where that was revealed. And so I knew that this was where I found my niche, marrying that social justice, that elevation of health inequity, and really how we can combat that with clinical research. So um, I went to get my master's in biomedical engineering, uh, picked up that physics degree and focused in clinical research, and then literally started volunteering at a site so that I could gain experience while I was teaching uh, high school. And I finally got a company that took a chance on me that um, United Biosource Corporation, a smaller CRO, where I was in their patient recruitment and engagement department. And there I was really, really able to um, not only use my teaching background, but also the, the volunteering work that I had done at that site around patient education. That particular site was in Tampa, Florida and um, was, was hosted by Dr. Jose Ferreira. Wonderful office that has such a diverse staff. I mean, he is from the, his, his background is he's from the Dominican Republic or his family is, um, but they also had nurse practitioners from Haiti, um, from the Asian background. So just so diverse. And I could see the impact that that had on patients. And I took all that experience when I came into pharma, um, specifically in patient recruitment. And as I kind of worked my way through, when I moved over to um, another opportunity at Johnson & Johnson, they had a diversity work stream. So I joined that work stream and took all of the learnings that I had learned in patient recruitment around diverse um, diverse populations and engagements and how that should look different. And then when they developed their very first DNI and clinical trials department, uh, they select. Yeah, I was selected, quite frankly, to be their first clinical operations lead. And then the COVID pandemic hit. So so timely, but I got to, you know, apply all my learnings that I had done on previous trials. And now I'm here at Takeda, just kind of continuing to lead that change. Um, it's important for all of us. It's important across the industry. And so working at Takeda, it was just another chance to really keep the momentum going because it's not just a Takeda problem, not just a Lilly problem, not just a J&J, Pfizer, all of these other industries. It's an industry problem. And so the more that we can band together um, and share those learnings, the better we can attack, tackle this particular important topic. So long-winded, but I think it's important to kind of share where I came and how I got there because I'm just so excited uh, to be doing a job that I love. Um, and I tell people, I always said, this is what I wanted to do and now I'm doing it. That's really great. Now you have such a rich background. It's it's helpful for me. I know Christina knows you personally, but now I, I know why when we brought this topic up, she said, I have the person. <laughs> and I'm so glad that you agreed to come on the podcast. This is a really wonderful opportunity for us to pick your brain a little bit more and, and leverage your experience. So we know that the FDA released the draft guidance entitled Diversity Plans to Improve Enrollment from Underrepresented racial and ethnic population in clinical trials just in April of this year. So after the COVID-19 pandemic and, and a lot of the other things that you mentioned, um, it's also preceded by related guidance documents recommending prospective design and operational tactics to increase trial diversity that were published in 2016, 2017, and 2020. And I know that, you know, there's the FDA guidance and there's also been a, a number of other guidances, including an international cross-industry academic and government working groups who have published um, comprehensive recommendations out of the, for example, the multi-regional clinical trial center of the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Harvard. 
So can you comment on the extent to which you've seen these guidances change the way that sponsors run their trials uh, to generate the supportive evidence for new drugs, just given your experience and your breadth in the industry so far? Well, I, I like the fact that you mentioned 2016, because I think for a lot of us, we think this is a brand new topic that was really birthed out of COVID and the pandemic and seeing some of these changes. But even before 2016, back to 1980 is when we see the first call from the FDA to really look at subpopulations. And in that particular trial, it was looking along the lines of age, just recognizing wow, we, pediatric populations may process drugs differently. And four years ago wasn't that long of a long of a time, but can you imagine we weren't even doing a lot of pediatric trials at that time? So speed forward, we saw the same for women. We saw a lack of women in research, and we still do. And then moving forward, it was now race and ethnicity. So all of these guidances have really been the culmination of what we saw in April 2022. And organizations like MRCT were really at the forefront of that. While that guidance and that booklet dropped in 2020, they had been preparing it for a while. And same with the, uh, the 2020 guidance from the FDA. So it was really just the, the timing, I say serendipitous timing, the world had to stop and finally everyone was paying attention to these guidances. And it really has changed the way that companies have viewed this. So while I had just started that little small role at J&J, &J, it all of a sudden became such a big deal when we had the COVID pandemic. And we were really looking to put together, how do you actually operationalize clinical trials? And so it went from looking at, um, you know, a lupus trial I had worked on, a heart failure medication, where we got, these were all over indexed, um, Alzheimer's disease, all of these little single trials. And how do we do this in record time when distrust exists, et cetera? So now you see pharma companies really taking a step back and saying, how can we operationalize this and how can we use these guidances? And MRCT is not the only organization that has stood up um, different collaborations. We see it with bio, we see it um, with pharma, we see it even with Transcelerate, um, SCRS. And all of them are pulling different entities of the industry together to really try to provide guidances, templates, um, even the way that we're assessing sites and trying to provide some standardization because there is a recognition that part of the issue is not that we haven't been including patients, but maybe we don't know how, and maybe we haven't been doing a great job of listening. So these guidances have really given sponsors at least some sort of foundation of what they need to start thinking about and furthermore, it's an acknowledgement that a work stream or a single entity is not really going to be doing it. So while I'm the director at Takeda, if you look across industry, almost every single major pharmaceutical company now has a DEI director of diversity in clinical trials, which speaks to the work that needs to be done, um, but can be leveraged from these guidances. And so that's what I've seen as the largest change in industry is that recognition that it's going to take some work and we actually need resources to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you in terms of, you know, seeing people, um, how COVID has helped us to highlight these issues and actually seeing industry put forth the resources in order to, um, in order to be able to, I guess, help to move forward in, in increasing diversity in clinical trials. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, it's an industry problem. And can you comment on why this is such a challenging issue? And if there are any particular solutions that you believe may be effective? 
Yeah. So, I mean, access, right? Access is one of the, the precluders of how a person even gets treatment. And we see it the same in research. Out of convention, out of comfortability, every, everyone is a creature of habit. So the same is for industry. We tend to go to the same sites over and over and over again. And when you keep doing that, you tend to get the same patients, the same types of patients over and over again. So it's no wonder that regardless of the indication that we look at, we still almost see the same lack of diversity, whether it's in oncology, whether it's in neuroscience, whether it's in cardiovascular. I mean, you think about cardiovascular and oncology, that's where we see large, great health disparities cardiovascular is, you know, type two diabetes, heart, heart medications, where those are really chronic diseases impacting communities of color. And yet we continue to see clinical trials that lack that. And so site selection and site placement is one area that is easy, that doesn't require community outreach. It literally means going to the neighborhoods where, um, or the communities and selecting sites where there are actually people that should reflect the disease. And if you think about that, right, we are, we're, we're a timeline driven organization. We're always trying to speed, speed up those timelines to get our patients medications faster. But if we go to where the patients with the disease are, you can imagine how that actually speeds up the process. So that's one area is placing sites in more diverse locations. And then as a patient recruitment person at, at my heart, one of the areas that I had to really um, educate people on is making sure we have a diversity in the places we're actually doing trial education. So as an African-American woman, I grew up with Ebony Magazine and Essence Magazine on my table. Those were things that were core staples. And it was really important because in Utah, we had just such a lack of representation and my parents made sure that those were in our household. Well, advertising in those magazines, that's not something that was a, a known outlet that we were regularly incorporating. And same when I was working again on that ALZ trial, we, we were working with like Telemundo and a lot of localized Spanish radio stations. Because again, if you want people that reflect the disease, you have to go to where they're actually listening to it. So those are the two factors that I have seen work for sure over and over again. And um, now I would even say every single pharmaceutical company is, has some sort of standardization where they're doing that. And the last one that I would really push everyone to do is having some sort of trial metric or goal. Um, it's always nice to say that you want to have a trial that's more diverse, but if you don't have a number that you're looking at, and again, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a numbers person by by trade, but we give students grades, right? So they know where they're where, what they're tracking towards. We give our schools grades. And so we actually need to know what the trial demographics should look like and if they're tracking towards Epi. When I first started this, when I would talk to people about um, the demographics of trial, most of them had never even thought about it, never even thought about what the demographics of the US are. So that last part of actually having a metric that you're tracking to really makes a difference between success and just having a nice to have, we're going to try to aim for it. Because when you try, sometimes you fail. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we are numbers people as well, Christina and I <laughs> really understand that. And I, I think it, it, it's, it's easy to say, but it's hard to do, you know, understanding the epidemiology of each disease is, is difficult. Understanding the epidemiology in the U.S. versus in other countries is also difficult. And I, I think we shouldn't shy away from what's difficult. It, it'll only increase our ability to bring the right medicines to the right people. So it's, it's such an important thing. And I'm so glad we're talking about it. 
Um, but likewise, as statisticians, we like to think in terms of answering questions. So, for example, when we're thinking through this, we want to know what the drug effect is in a particular population, which, you know, as we're rolling out these goals, we're going to be collecting sufficient sample sizes in data or in um, particular populations to start to look at that. Um, and in fact, in the guidance, it says one recommendation is to collect data to explore these potential differences for safety and, and or effectiveness associated with race and ethnicity throughout the life cycle with attempts to mirror the epidemiology of the disease to allow for pooling data to evaluate outcomes by race and ethnicity. So do you feel sponsors need to do more than what seems like this good faith enrollment recommendation um, as we begin to adhere to the guidance and, and roll it out? So I guess I kind of jumped ahead, right? Um, because I just yeah, well, made my shameless plug around, around the importance of trial metrics. And it does become cumbersome. I mean, oncology has tons of data, but we see gaps in other areas. And I think that even speaks to why we have these health disparities is we haven't been tracking them. Um, you all are numbers people as, as well. And when we can't even go back to the data and say, why is this occurring? But physicians can speak to it in a real life experience. We have to have a way to inform us as sponsors um, around the importance of that. I mean, even when we look at certain laboratory values, we see variations. BMI is something that I always think of because um, I, you know, am categorized as overweight and obese because, you know, I'm 5'1 and 155, but I, I run, I'm, I'm pretty healthy. I, I have a low heart rate, but according to that scale, you know, it's completely off. And we see that across race and ethnicity and even gender, it's different. So you can imagine um, when we start looking at epidemiology data at that race and ethnicity, there's potential that not only does the health disease have a disparity, but potentially those drugs could have a variation. And while it is difficult, we need some sort of way to measure that and make sure that we're tracking towards who the disease is presenting. So this is a challenge across industry. Um, I don't think anyone has come up with a surefire way because there are gaps in that data. But I will say when we do have the epi data that does exist along the lines of race and ethnicity, we should at least include that um, as, a, as more than just a good faith, but as a, as a gold standard of what we should aim for. Because if we're truly doing that, then we, are, we can really see if there is safety or, or efficacy differences in the population that's impacted rather than it being approved. And then we discover later that there are and that drug has to be pulled off the market. So that's, you know, that's the real life implication of that. We also know that there are approved drugs or we do see it. Um, MRCT, uh, one, of their, one of the tables that I absolutely love is this graph where it shows all these approved medications and labeling implications. And some of them are good, some of them are dosaging, but they're on the differences um, ranging from age, race, ethnicity, gender, ancestry, genetic and allele typing um, that are all only known through diverse populations. So in my opinion, we do need to do more than just a good faith or saying we're going to try, we actually need to try to meet that. And if we don't, we can need to have an explanation as to why. Um, I also recognize that for COVID, right, 60% of the population were people of color. We've never had a trial that has achieved, um, that has hit every single population when we're talking about the Black community, the Hispanic and Latinx community, Pacific Islander and Hawaii population. And we just saw it just decimate um, those communities. It would have probably been I'm going to say impossible, but very, very um, difficult to reach that 60%, but we had to start somewhere. 
And so you saw a lot of companies at least aim for U.S. census data, because if we could at least get there, at least it's reflective of the U.S. population. So those are the good faith enrollment recommendations and efforts that I that I strongly feel we all should make, even in the absence of EPI. Yeah, thank you so much for commenting on that, Lachelle. And I know we've been talking a lot about the U.S. <laughs> And contemporary clinical research is often international with perhaps a decreasing focus on U.S. participation. So in light of this, how should we view the FDA guidance within the light of development programs where only a small portion of recruitment happens in the U.S.? And should sponsors apply these considerations across different geographies? And how should they account for these populations relative to their U.S. recruitment strategies? So yeah, that's a tough question because um, within the FDA guidance, there, that's always the question, is this global? Is this a U.S. aspect? And I think we have to also think about the fact that the FDA is speaking from a U.S. lens when they're talking about race and ethnicity. When we start going outside of the U.S., countries may define that completely different. Um, their, their diversity aspects could be completely different. I think of China and Japan in particular that actually require a certain percentage um, to be actually Chinese or Japanese. And even in the US, if they are more than one generation removed, they do not count in the data. So really accounting for the environmental factors that can happen when you, you know, migrate to a new, new environment. And so um, my first recommendation is to track it separately. The US, we know very clearly what our demographics are here. And then from a global perspective, it should be tracked, um, tracked as well. What countries are we participating in? What countries are doing well? What countries um, are not have room to grow? You highlighted the fact that the US sometimes lags and that is true. So how can we fill in those gaps with the diversity of our geography and where we place our clinical research? Um, vaccines has done a great job of engaging in, uh, in developing countries. How can we move those learnings um, and making sure that it's not just vaccines, but we're looking at neuroscience, we're looking at oncology, we're looking at all the other disease states where we're also um, conducting clinical trials in those countries and do a better job so that now from a global perspective, we also have that, that geographic diversity, which will then lend itself to better um, race and ethnicity data. So tracking it separately for the US, somebody that's in you know Britain is not necessarily an African-American, right? <laughs> the different terminology, we got to account for that. And somebody that is in the UK, they, we actually have, you know, a higher Asian population there. So we need to think about those factors when we go to other countries and when we're starting to talk about global diversity. And a complex uh, uh, planning uh, process for people like you, Lachelle. So um, it, it'll be, you know, a, an entire team effort to, to get these things up and running. Um, but Thankfully, we have things like the decentralized clinical trials and, you know, efforts to simplify enrollment, eligibility criteria, and then, you know, refined efforts to increase retention through decreased patient burden in participating in these trials in, in any way possible, whether it's through digital solutions or other um, ways of making things easier. Um, you know, the, this, these types of efforts are certainly increasing the participation and, and making it more equitable and accessible. Are there other solutions to creating more diverse and inclusive trials? Or could you comment on which of these you feel are most impactful or, or have the most potential to be um, impactful that aren't fully leveraged at the moment? 
So I, I, I love the idea of decentralized trials. I think oftentimes people get very, very hung up on the technological aspect of it. And um, one of the elements of decentralized trials is also kind of moving out to satellite sites, being able to go to a CVS or like a Walgreens to get your blood drawn or even like a local lab core. Those are all also elements of bringing the trial to the patient. Um, I know during COVID, we even had a few sites that were using mobile units to expand their clinical trial sites. And they would actually have a mobile site in a park. So it really, really added um, to that decentralized nature. But I've also seen where we've required um, electronic devices or specific like watches or Android versus iPhone, et cetera, as a precluder to trial entry. And when you think about that, that creates another divide. So while I think all of those efforts are, are good and we have the Cures 2.0 app that really doubled down on that and elevated the impact of telemedicine and decentralized trials, we also need to be prepared as sponsors to close that gap for communities that still may have that, um, have that lack of Wi-Fi or you know, lack of just availability. We saw this during the pandemic with education around how some students did not have um, computers, had limited Wi-Fi, and were relying on hotspots. And so as we're thinking about decentralized trials, we need to keep those same aspects in mind here. Yeah, and I think it goes back to, you know, your point that you made about access and how access is super important for us to be able to increase the diversity. Um, in clinical trials. And another thing that you mentioned previously was your experience with patient engagement. And the benefits of this relationship is wider, you know, of the patient-patient advocacy engagement is wider than just like enhancing race and diversity in clinical trials. And so do you have any thoughts about the added benefits of this engagement? And are there any members of the industry that do this particularly well? Um, Kochi, quite frankly, um, they are, you know, the founder of that particular organization, Melody Blackwell, has done an incredible job of not only normalizing clinical research, but also elevating a condition that oftentimes is misdiagnosed, um, in particular in the Black community, underdiagnosed. Um, many patients that have Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis in the Black community could have, take a decade to get a diagnosis because it is not a Black disease. And she's done a great job of not only raising awareness within healthcare providers, right, between sponsor and patient advocacy group engagement, but also in the community by raising awareness of symptoms. I mean, most of us don't go to the doctor unless we have some sort of persistent illness or symptom, et cetera. But if we don't even know what we're looking for, um, it's hard to report that. And then you couple that with the, a healthcare system that says, well, that's not a disease that Black people get, right? You can imagine the confusion, the frustration, the more severity as that disease goes on and on and on and on and on. And so she's done a great job of not only just getting that discussion going on both ends, but also backing that up with trying to normalize the discussion around clinical research. Because I think one of the aspects that we often forget about is there can't be any new treatments if there's not research. So if we're not part of the participation or participating as patients, then we can almost keep the, the negative 
aspects, health outcomes going on and on and on. And so how do we start normalizing that? How do we start making clinical research part of that discussion? And I think patient advocacy groups and community groups as well. Um, what we have seen across the industry and you know, patient advocacy groups do great work, but also sometimes they lack diversity. And so in those spaces, we don't see patients of color expressing what their hurdles are to getting treatment and it's a miss. And that ends up impacting some of our patient recruitment strategies. So I would even encourage those to expand beyond patient advocacy groups and community groups. And when I mean community groups, I'm speaking about things like UNIDOS, I'm speaking about things like National Urban League, um, Black Fraternities and Sororities. I happen to be a member um, of Alpha Kappa Alpha, and we have a health initiative. And all of those, uh, all of those particular organizations have a health initiative that impact their communities and their trusted sources. So those partnerships can be key to really increasing awareness about disease and informing us what we can do within our trials to be of a better support and also an educational avenue. That's an interesting um, thing to think about. I, I hadn't given it that much thought um, and I appreciate the perspective. Uh, so, you know, if we were to meet again in 10 years and talk about the same topic, <laughs> Um, what do you think progress in the industry relative to diversity in clinical trials would make you the most happiest? And what progress do you think would surprise you the most? Um, I mean, progress would be meeting epidemiology data for every disease state, right? Um, progress would be actually having reporting and reports of efficacy and safety that can be backed up from the data because our trial population is so rich with um, the elements of diversity that we know for sure that certain medications work better in a certain population. Progress means maybe even a little more personalized medicine, recognizing that, hey, this medication works great in the black population, but not so well in the white population. And there's nothing wrong with that because we did the science and now we're being more responsible citizens of our data and with our medications that we only knew because we had more diversity. That progress, if we got to that point in the next 10 years, that probably would be my biggest surprise if we started moving in that manner. And then I think, too, the other part that would make me um, extremely happy is just to see better representation in clinical research amongst not only study coordinators, but our investigative sites. So really, what does that workforce look like? Um, and really increasing the number of people of color engaging in clinical research at the trial level and quite frankly, within industry. Um, I know that I'm one of very, very few African-American women, me and Christina, uh, in our industry. And that does have an impact on patient participation. Um, it's something that people don't often think about, but every time I visit a patient advocacy group, every time I do an ad board, every time I'm one of the only ones and another patient of color, they bring that up. And so we as industry need to be listening to the importance of representation and how that builds some of that trust because right there, there is an acknowledgement that we need to do better. And now you have somebody there that may know my experience and can speak for me. So mm -hmm. that's what progress look like to me. Yeah. I mean, you gave two wonderful examples of chronic diseases that, you know, are blanketed in these, you know, you talked about overweight and obesity and, and Crohn's disease. And if, if these aren't personalized from the science perspective, they're never going to be personalized from the medical perspective and, and the treatment. So I think it, it really starts with understanding the research, doing the research and personalizing the disease state and also then the medicine so that are treating them. Lots of opportunity for us to 
meet expectations in Excel. Yeah, absolutely. And we've talked a lot about potential solutions. And Lachelle, in your eyes, what should be the minimum investment companies make in order to ensure these diversity um, efforts? And then what is the ideal investment? Well, minimum resource, right? Um, I have been part of working groups. Christina, I'm sure you've been part of working groups. Amy, you probably have been part of working groups in general. And we know that working groups are off work hours. You have to be dedicated. And sometimes your regular work interferes with that. And so at a very minimum, at the bare minimum, having somebody that's actually dedicated to moving that forward, where it's their day-to-day job, because it does need that focus, talking about an issue that spans back to, you know, the infancies of the U.S. and, you know, slavery and racism and all of those things. So at a bare minimum, somebody that can focus the day-to-day efforts on making that, making those structural changes. And then what is the ideal investment? Um, making sure that we're considering DE&I at all levels, not just within that clinical research, but also expanding that into learning, also expanding that again into workforce, expanding that into talent acquisition, expanding that to monetary contributions. Um, I love what's happening around uh, the industry. You know, Christina and I are both HBCU graduates, and just to see the investment there, I'm almost getting choked up thinking about it because when I was at Tuskegee, it was like, what's that? You know, only people knew about the airmen. And now people are realizing these wonderful institutions that were really established because black people couldn't go to school um, in in segregated uh, and colleges and universities. And to acknowledge that a lot of our educators, George Washington Carver, Martin Luther King, et cetera, they were born out of HBCUs. So that monetary investment you know, both of us are, are in the STEM field and we came from HBCUs and we're doing great things. How many more of them, how many more of us are there? Well, I can say tons. <laughs> um, absolutely. So that investment in those institutions that rear up uh, more people of color in the STEM field is what would be an ideal, just like we give to every other college. We need to be part of that conversation, too. Yeah, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but I, I might even put that as our minimum investment. I don't know if we need to put that in an ideal world. It just seems like the right thing that companies should be doing. Um, Lachelle, I've learned so much today and I, I really appreciate this conversation. So I want to thank you first for coming on the podcast and discussing this topic. I also want to thank you for all the work that you are doing at Takeda and, and in the industry. I think it's so important. Um, I, I want to offer any closing remarks um, that you may have. I mean, well, first, you know, thank you for um, inviting. You can tell this is a topic that I'm extremely passionate about, but more so um, just keep the conversation, the discussion going. These are tough conversations, of course, but they need to happen. And we can only continue to make that change by pushing through what's uncomfortable and, and normalizing that. That's the only way we can address these issues. So um, thank you again for inviting me. Um, just that's pretty much it. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much, Lachelle, for joining us. And we will definitely keep the conversation going. I'm so glad Amy and I have this platform um, as a means to do so. And, you know, just to recap a little bit of what we talked about, uh, you mentioned how sponsors need to focus on expanding access to patients and expanding relationships within community groups of the patients who actually have these diseases. 
Also, we discuss holding industry accountable through metrics um, by actually taking the time to find the epidemiology data, even though it can be cumbersome, as you and I both know really well. Uh, we can increase engagement in clinical trials across all levels, like not only within clinical trials, but through investigators, people who help run the clinical trials, and then also making an investment in communities and like the schools that produce um, people uh, who, who can help to increase the diversity across the board. So Lachelle, just thank you. Thank you for joining us. And it has been such a wonderful time with you. And thank you uh, to Amy, my co-host. And we are excited that we will have our next podcast in August. So tune in. And this has been Amy and Christina with the ASA Biopharmaceutical Podcast. Thank you.